listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoschel. There's been a lot written over the years about Van Morrison, the man and the music, but you won't find a lot about the spring and summer of 1968 that he spent in Boston, Massachusetts, getting the songs together that would eventually appear on Astro Weeks, the classic album. Until now, until lifelong Bostonian and musician Ryan Walsh released his book, Astro Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Ryan Walsh, who, by the way, leads his own band, Hallelujah, The Hills, a great indie rock band in Boston. Ryan was obsessed with Astro Weeks, the album, and this Boston angle, and eventually wrote an article for Boston Magazine about the time Morrison spent in Boston. So this book, that came out just this year, 50 years after 1968, covers seemingly every aspect of urban life. And Astro Weeks is a book that's definitely worth reading. I was so happy to catch up with him recently. Ryan Walsh, thank you so much for being on the show. And congratulations. Uh, what a great time this must be for you. Book tour, major reviews, New York Times, The Atlantic. Uh, it is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Great characters, great stories. I am a Bostonian. I am a Van Morrison fan, but there is so much more in this book, and it was just a pleasure to read. Can't wait to talk about it with you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So please, let's just start with the album. Astro Weeks is Van Morrison's second album as a leader. How about you uh, tell the listeners in your mind what this album is really about, its sound, its significance? Yes. Well, um, people like to argue what it's about, which is one of the nice, I think that's a nice feature about it, is that it can be different things to different people, which I think a lot of great art has that function. Right. But, um, you know, the the place I start describing it is that it was recorded in 1968, but it does not sound like that, because you can usually pick that out a mile away. There's the sitar, there's the backwards electric guitar, and there's none of that. It's an acoustic album played by... Um, New York jazz players um, backing up a guy they didn't know from Belfast, Ireland, who did not talk to them and barely played them the songs before they hit record. Right. <laughs> it's the Thanks, most beautiful. Yeah. Well, I am happy how it came. I don't care <laughs> if it was poor manners. It's just this incredible document, um, entirely listenable to my ears, at least. These are all my opinions. And, you know, Certain just idiosyncratic things like every song sounds like you could play it at the beginning or end of a movie. You know, ah, sometimes you yeah. get a feel like from a song, like, that'd be great end credits. Like, But these songs are both, and, and that to me ties in with the lyrical content where the album starts with you being born again and then ends with someone dying. You know, kind of that just um, each, everything on the album has two sides of the of a coin to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting because Moondance, the album that came right after this, is right. the one that everybody knows mm -hmm. and that really made his mark as a huge star. Right. But this is the one that 50 years later is held up by the rock cognoscenti as yes. the vintage, the great work of Van Morrison. So why do you think it has sort of escaped the more popular uh, approval? And and what is it that makes it sort of in your mind stand out from, say, Moondance? Well, I do pair, after working on this project, I'll forever pair them um, because 
he wrote a lot of those songs at the same time. Astral Weeks, he wrote the final songs for Astral Weeks and a couple of the songs for Moondance around that time he was living in Cambridge. And it's it's funny. He was Van Morrison already paid his dues. He's kind of like in a terrible record deal. He's got to get out of this jam. So what do you do? Record the artiest album of all time <laughs> with up to nine-minute songs that no one's going to play on the radio. It's very a curious decision right. of someone to do in who's been backed into a corner. Usually a career killer, those sorts yes. of decisions. Yeah. And, you know, he does get to it the next album, which is the radio hits of Moondance. Like right. every, every song on there you've heard a million times and radio loves it. Um and, you know, producer of Astro Week, Louis Merenstein, he heard, for instance, the song Moondance, considered it and said, that's too kind of cheery, radio friendly. Mm. So Louis is a um, um, a real architect of Astro Weeks. And in fact, he starts to produce Moondance and band kind of finally gets his wits about him to kind of take charge of a recording scenario and fires Louis and thus begins the reigning terror of Van Morrison <laughs> in the studio. Uh, for decades to come. So let's get into the story around this album a little bit. Now, I, I love the part in the book where you describe yourself as a 22-year-old 22 22-year-old Boston University heartbroken senior yeah. walking to a record store, find the album, what is this? Boston towns, Boston area, Massachusetts towns are mentioned on the back of the album. You get yeah. into this album. Yeah. It becomes your favorite album. It sort of becomes this, uh, you describe it as providing you sanity or something at a time when you really needed it. So yeah. um, that was really interesting to me. And then you find out about the Boston connection. Right. So what was it that brought this guy from Belfast to ultimately Boston? Well, it took me a long time to figure that out. I mean, you you stare at the back of the sleeve and it mentions Hyenas Port. Cambridge Port, uh, Cape Cod, and and truly, I'm not joking when I say this. I just figured those were also towns in Ireland <laughs> or the UK because I'm from Dedham and there's a Dedham, England. Right. I was like, this tracks <laughs> because that's how much it doesn't make sense that he was here. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, uh, you associate him with Ireland or perhaps the Bay Area or Woodstock, even. But what happened was, um, um. Burt Burns, the uh, songwriter and record producer, um, Hang On Sloopy, for instance, um, he starts to work with them, Van's band from Belfast, and then he kind of takes Van under his wing after them dissolves or after Van leaves them, they continued. Um, and they, you know, cook up the sessions where Brown Eyed Girl comes out of, which is a big radio hit. And Burt Burns um, has Van sign a very... A terrible record contract and he's also pretty friendly with a bunch of mobsters at the time Uh-oh. <laughs> so um so when van starts to misbehave the guy put in charge is carmine wassel denoya mm. who's a low classified by the fbi as a low level mobster but convicted of payola in the 70s uh, you know, he would describe if a DJ wouldn't play the record he was assigned to get that DJ to play, he would just dangle him out the window till, oh, he, till he said yes. And when I finally got a hold of Carmine when he was still alive, I cold called him one night and he answered the phone, City Morgue, hello, City Morgue. <laughs> so I was like, I got the right guy. Still got his charm. Yeah. So um, Carmine's behavior was increasingly scary and uh, scaring Van and his girlfriend, about to be new wife Janet Planet, 
And they were terrified. And they just wanted to get out of New York. They wanted to get out of that record contract. Burt Burns dies of a heart attack. His wife blames Van over the constant arguing they're doing over the brown-eyed girl royalties. Like, things are pretty dark. And some manager throws a lifeline out from, he's an independent manager from um, Boston, Cambridge, and they move to Green Street, Mm. early 1968. It's crazy. Right over there in Cambridgeport, yeah. Dan Morrison yes. lived yeah. and wrote this album, basically. He, I, I, you know, I'm careful to say stuff like that. He, mm-hmm. he pro- probably wrote three, maybe four of those songs there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as Janet Planet described, and he himself has described, even the oldest songs, Madam George and, and Ballerina, he was working on changing the lyrics, you know, trying to tighten up. And also trying to figure out what the sound of these songs should be. Right. Um, which in Boston, he eventually stumbles upon this idea of all acoustic. So he wound up hooking up with various musicians around town, yeah. like a bassist who was at Berkeley yes. at the time. Uh, what's Tom Kil- Tom Kilbanya. Tom yeah. Kilbanya. So, um, and he wound up playing with Van in almost all of all of his shows while he was in Boston or all of them. He, Tom is the only constant. Okay. Van kind of goes through. He first of all, he uses a bizarre name, the Van Morrison controversy. Oh, right, which <laughs> kind of fits considering yeah. what had just happened in New York. Yeah, and it's this band name he only uses with his Boston musicians. It's his first American steady band, which also is significant. And he kind of goes through three lineups in a spring and a summer here in Boston. Mm. The first lineup sounds kind of like what you hear on Brown Eyed Girl. Mm-hmm. Second lineup was pretty electric and had some young kids who just wanted to go crazy uh-huh. and there's like it's kind of like sped up and punky almost uh-huh. as it's been described to me and then that final iteration of the Van Morrison controversy is a acoustic trio and that's what Warner Brothers hears and signs Van uh, upon hearing well it's we're going to talk more about that recording later on but let's get into more of this sort of story that's around van at the time uh it's one of the really great things about this story it's sort of this heavily braided narrative there's a lot of different threads there's this mel lyman the musician and leader of uh, the fort hill community kind of a cult there's um the media of the time you you uh, write about films books um the Boston sound bands james brown is in there martin luther king uh it's sort of this chowda of 1968 uh pardon my accent uh of boston um so i'm wondering about the choices you made and the connections you found right but maybe it would be good to just kind of start with this mel lyman figure because he's a major major part of this book you sort of begin and end with mel lyman it's really. true so absolutely who, who was he well he um just to, as a way of describing who he was, I'll explain just kind of how I came upon him, um, was that when uh, I started working with Ed Park at Penguin, how, how to turn this original Boston Magazine Van Morrison story into a book, we had a bunch of ideas. For a little while, I was clinging too tightly of just that album. And and then, it, you know, he was encouraging me, maybe there's other interesting, wild stories going on. And then when I started to look, there were too many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but one of the first things... I figured out was that Van Morrison would be one of our tour guides through the city in the year, and the other would be this guy, Mel Lyman. And he was a folk musician, part of that Cambridge folk scene of the early 60s. He was in the Jim Queskin Jug Band. Um, he played banjo and harmonica. He crashed the stage at Newport after Dylan went electric. Oh, right. <laughs> he had been on The Tonight Show with the Queskin Jug Band. He was... Um, 
he was already, you know, kind of known and respected before um, what he's now most known for, which is uh, about 12 months, 8 to 12 months after that Newport show, um, he and some friends started moving into these houses up in Roxbury. And um, he started saying he was God. And then mm-hmm. more people moved up, and then they had a newspaper called Avatar. Many of the pages were devoted to explaining Mel's philosophy and that he was leading this community and building this community. And what struck me was, okay, they're, you know, Van and Mel, They, as far as I know, they never met. Hmm. But they're within a few miles of each other, same year. They're both on some version of Warner Brothers Records. Right. They're both kind of starving for spirituality and, cer- and pursuing it through music. And there was this perfect story arc. When the story begins in 68... Van is down as luck and kind of unknown, and Mel is kind of famous, at least in Boston. Right. And by the end of the story, those things have completely flipped. Uh-huh. You know. So I was like, well, that's a natural story arc right there. Um, so that was the starting point for how to build this kind of collage story that the book tells. So when you say uh, Lyman had this philosophy mm-hmm. and this publication called The Avatar, mm-hmm. what were they— what was it really about? I mean, he yeah. thought he was God, but what what were the other messages of what they were all about? Well, uh, you know, that's, it's an interesting question, and one they they could not answer back then and still could not properly do when I requested for a succinct kind of— Interesting. You know, they could they would offer things like life is hard work, or uh, but, you know, uh, when I asked Jim Queskin at Club Basim, he kind of laugh, nervously laughed and said, I should be able to sum that up, but I can't, and— um, but um, it's almost like he's just a provocateur. He's mm. just he's, he uses the pages to kind of troll people into reactions. You know, it's all about living in the moment. Um, but uh, you know, some terrible things too. This is not a, um, a positive, you know, a story to glorify them. It's um, but one of the early things. The Globe was super fascinated with the community, and they, in the first profile of them of the community, I think they asked, what is your purpose? And one of the members said, well, once we get to know each other, we're going to create the world's most beautiful, the most beautiful music the world has ever known. And I thought that was fantastic. I was like, sure. I got to see if that worked out. <laughs> and, um, but even if it didn't, just an attempt to build a community around the purpose of, you know, m- making the world's best album or, or right. music, that's, that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah. So, it's a lofty goal, and yeah. one wonders how how they how close they came. Um, right. What do you think? How close did they come? Well, I um, the, for, for <laughs> that to be their goal, they released a lot less music than they should have. <laughs> like when, I, when you know they, when they gave me a tour of the houses, I was like, "Well, are there like a basement full of tapes that you guys just right. didn't really, you know?" Because um, you know, kind of the main artifact that comes out of all that is Jim Queskin's America album Hmm. featuring the Mel Lyman family. Okay. Um, Which I think is a very good, unusual folk album. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's too late for me to say if I think it's interesting minus the story because I just discovered it at the same time. Gotcha. But I think it's it's pretty interesting and and enjoyable to listen to. Um, But, you know, there's a reason the, the near the end of the book when one of his followers kind of accuses him of getting addicted to leading and 
he kind of says like, man, you sure could play. Right. You know, like it's almost a cautionary tale. Like right. maybe what if they just did stick to that music? Maybe mm -hmm. things wouldn't have broke as bad as or as dark as they were. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I guess he had another another game in mind, being God and all that. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, like I said before, I love that all of this stuff was going on. It's not just about Astro Weeks. And, and you, you wrote about the fact that, you know, there had been a line or two about Van being in Boston and various places, but never like a full book on it. But I, I love how you, you, you seem to construct this t in a way where you were really digging at all of the cultural context around yeah. it. Mel Lyman and all this other stuff that I mentioned before. And I think that's a good, that's, you know, I teach at Berkeley and that's a big thing for, that's a big part of the conversation when you're talking about artists of any kind, really, uh, the world that the art emerges from. So how did, I guess I'm wondering how you started to see connections between some of these other things. You know, there were there, were there, uh, Maybe give an example or two of a connection that surprised you and you saw how this person or this project was connected to oh, that person. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, those just come, once you start turning over rocks, connections crawl out like bugs. <laughs> <laughs> or at least they did for me in the yeah. story. It was really interesting. Um, you know, Boston's a small city, so the scenes are interconnected. Um, I uh, We developed certain rules. I was looking for, you know, stories about music. Um, stories about people questioning authenticity. Is this real? Am I real? And then every story had to have an anchor in Boston and 68. Mm -hmm. uh, it could drift to other years and other cities. But for, you know, I uh, the, I remember the hair standing up on the back of my neck where at the end of an interview with John Payne about the Astro Week sessions, I said, That's did you, the saxophone, the, the flute um, saxophone player. Yep. player. I said, uh, did you ever go up to Fort Hill and visit the the Mel Lyman family? And he and he had a story about it. <laughs> and he said sure. And um, he went up, and they they were obsessed with astrology. And they asked what his sign was. And he said, uh, I think he said he was a Cap. No, they read and figured out he was a Capricorn. And they were super excited, like almost like, oh my God, you're going to be the new superstar of our community. And then someone looked at his chart and realized um, they had read it wrong, and he was. <laughs> Something else, not Capricorn. Uh -oh. And they were just kind of like, all right, you're old news. So, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Dodged a bullet there probably. But just to, just to, you know, I'm telling these two stories and then yeah. one character crosses over to the other. I couldn't believe it. You know? Well, you know, you mentioned Boston's a small city, yeah. you know, and, and that's one of the characters of this book. I've lived in the city for about 30 years. You've been here your whole life. And it is a small enough city. When you spend that much time, you seem to run across almost everybody multiple times. Sure. And I had that sense almost reading this book that as I was going through it, I almost had this feeling like, oh, I'm going to bump into somebody at this store or that store <laughs> yeah. or that the people yeah. in it were going to. Yes. So I thought that that really that came through. You know, one of the big things you talked about investigating music, one of the themes in it is uh, that I learned a lot about is the Boss Town sound. Right. And uh, there were three major bands that were pushed by, uh, you know, by the industry, and they were trying to compete with sort of the San Francisco sound. Yeah. And, uh, and basically the whole thing kind of flopped. Th these were talented musicians who unfortunately were not promoted in the way that best met their interests. Right. What was sort of your path of discovery? How much did you know about the Boss Town sound? Uh, and, and how do you sort of look back on that period in Boston's music history, having right. done this research? I, I, I think I'd heard the phrase and like maybe seen one of the advertisements, mm. um, but it uh, it was in passing and it didn't pique my interest. But um, 
when I started to look into it, it was, um, you know, it was pretty interesting. There's a whole chapter about it. And basically, to just catch your re- your listeners up right away, um, MGM Records, this fellow named Alan Lorber, who's kind of music industry veteran, you know, was trying to spot the next trend. And the San Francisco sound was built around a legitimate scene with great bands, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead. Mm. Hard pretty to, good. Hard to beat. <laughs> and But Lorber, in sort of an act of... Uh, hubris was like, well, you just we just got to pick a city here, and we just got to pick some bands, and this will happen for us. <laughs> so he picked Boston because of the college population, huge po- college population. Of course. And um, him and some other people went about picking three green kind of new bands, and um, kind of you know they didn't let them naturally develop, kind of threw them in the studio, said this, 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 put strings on it. And some of the bands learned of the name of their album from the Billboard ad that announced what the Boston sound was. Not good. They didn't know the other bands, which kills the idea that this is a scene. (laughs) And it's called the Boston sound, and every all three records couldn't sound more different. Right, yeah. (laughs) So um, for me, like, I love... I love bad marketing. Like, I think that's interesting <laughs> to like figure to, and especially right in that time where, you know, suits are supposed to write copy as if they're hippies. I love that. He's, it's such a disaster. If you, if you read the copy of that, the sound heard around the world that had in Billboard that announced them, it's just, uh, it's so, you know, ham fisted. Right. <laughs> um, but, the other thing about the story was the kids were genuinely excited and had dreams. So there again, you have this like two opposing forces, kids who want to follow their dreams and suits who want to make money. <laughs> and it's also interesting because Van could have been swept into it. Yeah. <laughs> and he does employ those musicians mm. for years to come. So he's tangentially related. And then, you know, uh, it's not so much in the book, but Lorber himself is still alive and Email one threatened to sue me, and oh, I was like, no. "I'm, just, I'm like just another Boston musician here being harassed <laughs> and threatened by uh, the architect of the Boston Sound 50 years later." So, what was the biggest challenge in working on this book? I would say it was almost entirely time management because um, we knew we wanted the book to come out on the 50th anniversary of the year we're talking about, right? If you do it too late in the year, everyone's tired of talking about that <laughs> right. anniversary. So I had about, I think, a year and a half to get it all done. And that includes research, interviews, writing. Mm-hmm. So it really did consume my life. Um, I woke up like 6 a.m., wrote, read at night, interviews whenever I could book them, but a lot on the weekends. And uh, I don't know. I just had this dumb confidence that mm-hmm. it was all going to tie together. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had already written the article, of course, which is the basis for chapter one, and I had written chapter two uh, for the proposal. Right. But um, a tremendous amount of work. <laughs> um, but I was like, well, this is incredible. I have a book deal. I'm going to safely guess I'll never have this again. Right. And just I can withstand anything for 18 months. Yeah. You know? Wow. So glad yeah. you put yourself through that. It's definitely uh <laughs> it's definitely worth it for the rest of us. Let's see if we can get it back to Van Morrison now. Sure, so yeah. so he was playing shows. They had they had gotten some attention from um they they'd sort of done an audition in Boston, right? Right. So all summer they're just kind of like playing any show they can get, which includes like high school gyms, <laughs> uh, amusement parks, 
terrible shows where they're arguing about money on stage with the club owner. Oh, man. And this is all around the Boston <laughs> yeah, area. Like yeah. Hampton Casino was one yeah, of them, yeah. right? Or uh, Rocky Point Amusement Park, mm-hmm. Wayland High School. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just endlessly fun to me because you know how it ends. He becomes one of the most famous rock singers right. in the world. And he's just kind of paying his dues for the like, third time <laughs> in his in his career in, in Boston that summer. Warner Brothers sends a producer named Louis Merenstein to Boston to audition him. And there used to be this place called Ace Recording Studio, um, Boylston Place, which is now kind of an alley entrance into what's known as the transportation building. Mm-hmm. The Van Morrison controversy, we're either rehearsing there or cutting some demos. Louis shows up from New York and Van plays a new song, the title track, Astral Weeks, alone, sitting on a stool, um, playing acoustic guitar. And Louis said he started to vibrate and like cry. He was just immediately grabbed by it and he knew that this kid was being born again Mm. and according to Lou uh, he said you know let's do it let's go to New York let's make this record so they went to New York there was never talk of doing it in Boston in the end so what happened was Van argued for the band had dwindled down to a trio by that point Mm -hmm. and Van said I've been working with these guys they had this sound I mean when you hear the recording of them as a trio, acoustic, it sounds like Astro Weeks without the strings. So they had kind of gotten into what is about to uh, happen in New York. So Van says, uh, you know, let me use my guys. And Lewis says, no, 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 I have this all planned, these New York jazz players. So either in an act of extreme kindness or cruelty, Warner Brothers <laughs> pays for these Boston kids to sit on the couch oh, man. in New York and watch this album get made without them. Oh, that's brutal. It's brutal because Tom, upright bass player, his hero is Richard Davis. Mm. And who walks in the door to play on the songs? Richard, Richard Davis. Davis. <laughs> and he's crushed. Um, Great bass player. Jazz amazing. bass player. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but John Payne... Uh, was a little more insistent and just badgered his way onto that album. <laughs> it's such a great story. Yeah, yeah, there's a great tidbit in there, which immediately made me think of the story about Al Cooper. Yes. Sort of just sitting in on Like a Rolling Stone, the Dylan track from 65, right? It, it just sort of like, yeah, yes. I'm just going to sit down and I'm just going to be on this. And it winds up being the signature sound of that track. It's, the late, because he's going to the organ changes late because he doesn't know them. He's yeah. looking at people saying, I did, that's so funny. I never thought of that, but that's, isn't Al Cooper from around here too? Well, he he. I don't know if he still lives in Somerville, but yeah, he taught yeah. at Berkeley for a right, while, and right. he did live live on the north side at one point. Yeah, something about Boston. Boston kids just bossily talking their but, way. Into that's <laughs> true. And John Payne, man, God, God bless him. He he teaches music about a hundred yards from where we're yes. sitting right now. So yes. uh, a real jewel of the Boston scene. He also played on some Bonnie Raitt records as well. John Payne. Yeah, if you look at Bonnie Raitt's appearance on SNL, mm-hmm. which is um, uh, on. YouTube or something, Um, there's John on stage with her. At this point in the conversation, Ryan and I hadn't talked about the catacombs. That's the subterranean club in Boston where John Payne, Tom Kilbania, and Van Morrison performed the tunes that would land on Astro Weeks. One of the driving narratives of this book was Ryan's quest to hear some recordings that were made one night way down below street level of the Van Morrison controversy. 
So the catacombs, which I didn't even know about, even though I've walked by right. the space. I, I've worked at Berkeley for 26 years. I've walked by Little Stevie's Pizza probably 9 billion times over those years. Yes. And little did I know the history of what took place down below the street. Right. So what was the catacombs? What were the catacombs? In um, 60, late 67, a new club in Boston opened on Boylston Street, two floors underground mm. in an old bowling alley called the catacombs and it was mostly jazz and folk but it's where um warner brothers exec joe smith sees van's band um van plays this string of shows there in august all throughout august that kind of changes whole career um and peter wolf who was van's kind of biggest boston friend uh of the hallucinations to be famous in a few years with the Jay Giles band. Mm -hmm. Peter has the foresight to, you know, maybe these shows are important. I'm going to bring a, uh, a recorder and tape one. Mm -hmm. That um, has never been released. And it was like whispered about, there was a few things about it online when I first started searching. And then, you know, as you read earlier in the book, I had this interesting night with Peter at his house. Right, right. And bourbon and baked bur goods. Bourbon basically. and baked goods. <laughs> Classic. And, um, you know, right behind my head the whole time on the bookshelf was these tapes. And I asked Peter, um, you know, uh, I was casual and cool about it, but I'm desperate to hear them. <laughs> I'm like staring at the Holy Grail. Right. I'm like, would you ever let me hear these? And he said, yeah, if we digitize them, sure, I'd let you hear them. And then he never spoke to me oh. again <laughs> after oh. that night. Right. So um, a lot of the book is me trying to figure out how how to hear it these tapes it's a weird thing that happened like after aggressively trying they kind of fell in my lap yeah and uh you it, it's not completely clear if i'm remembering yep. where they yep. came from so you're not really able to say, say. darn it <laughs> so this means it's probably still unlikely that we're going to uh get these anytime soon well i don't know if here's the thing if morrison morrison has every reason to release them right a he owns them you know, I think I'm sure Peter is. I know Peter has given them to him. I, right. I mean, legally, who I don't know where that falls. But Dylan releases everything he sneezes <laughs> on these uh, bootlegs, right. which are a lot of them are great. But basement tapes. Yeah, this this recording is so wonderful and so great and so so um, historically important. It's just it would make so much sense to release them. I um, I would hope an official release was on somebody's mind. You know. Now you did get to hear the entire recording, right? From this, the the after they landed in your lap. So, what was sort of what's your quick take on what happened uh, yeah. in the catacombs that night, musically speaking? Well, it's a, like an audience of like 30, 40 people max. Wow! But they're all quiet, wrapped. When things get quiet at the end of a song, he really stretches it out. Everyone's whispering or barely playing. No one's chatting. Everyone's right. really wrapped. They knew something was going on. Here. Yeah, 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 and. You know, Cypress Avenue, which is a brand new song, you know, there's Tom's bass line, and it's what Davis is going to play on the album a few weeks later, mm -hmm. which to me proved things like Tom had always said, you know, I showed Richard a few of my bass lines, and Richard has always been like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of suggests that Tom is probably telling the more accurate story mm -hmm. there. Um, but also, like I said, they sound like Astral Weeks without the strings. Mm -hmm. So... They had already figured out a big piece of the puzzle here in Boston with Boston musicians. And that, to me, was just, um, it filled me with a lot of uh, pride and, and excitement. And, and yeah, I, I, like I was saying a few minutes ago, 
I don't enjoy, you know, being like, well, I write about it, but you can't hear it. I would love, if I didn't think I was going to get sued, I'd put it all out today <laughs> on right. the internet, you know? Yeah. Um, but um, a lot of it makes sense and could very well end up being accessible to people sooner than later, I would hope. Well, let's hope, and your book may help uh, make that happen. Who knows? That would be a dream come true for me. be really. amazing. Yeah. Um, so just to go back to sort of the larger story, the conclusion you know, I came to at the end of all this is that clearly it's not just about Van Morris in your book. It's not just about Astral Weeks. It's not even just about Boston. Um, it's really – it feels to me like it's an American story. It's about the state of things in 1968 in sort of a larger way. Um, did you have a sense of that at all as well, that you were capturing this kind of dark moment in yeah. our country's oh, yeah. history, dark and sort of pivotal? Yes. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, did you have a sense that it was building into this sort of larger sort of story about what was happening in the country at that time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I joke that uh, by the time you're 30, you've like accidentally seen a dozen documentaries about the 60s without even right. trying. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and growing up, I I never saw one mention Boston. So I was figured always figured it was probably pretty boring around here. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that's not the case. It's just not covered. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but people, you know, they people talk about 68 as um, a year that the country seemed hell-bent on ripping itself apart. And, and telling people's local stories about that really brought that idea alive to me. Way more than just, um, you know, experiencing the late 60s through whatever. I really caught the fear and the darkness and people were really losing it. I mean, mm-hmm. the, not only, you know, with their friends going off to Vietnam and never coming back, but just the assassinations at home. Like I really, people were living like it was their last day, a, yeah. excuse me, a lot of the time. And I think that's why the stories are so nuts. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it just seemed like there was this sort of sense of doom permeating the air at times. You know, Lester Bangs had this quote that I saw somewhere from what he wrote about uh, Van Morrison. He said he was an artist, quote, transfixed between pure rapture and anguish. And I kind of felt like that was a sort of vibe that was happening throughout this book as well. You know, where you have this amazing music and... um, this scene in Boston that was on the verge of maybe breaking through out of this inferiority complex that it seemed to have at the time. But then it just, then there was Mel Lyman, yeah. uh, almost in a weird way, undermining everything. Maybe that's giving him too much credit. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's just sort of that double-edged sword of the, of the time, you know? Yeah. Like the low, the highs are really high and yeah. the lows are really low. Like right. it's a, it's a, it's a year of extremes. No one's just getting by. But some people I interviewed still seemed almost traumatized by it. Um, hmm. So even if the book is funny or um, or about, you know, music that maybe no one um, idolizes 50 years later, to me it was all worth taking seriously because it was someone's whole life. Mm-hmm. It, in that moment it meant everything to them. So I tried to respect that, you know. 
One more quick thing I want to I want to mention, and one quick thing I want to ask you, and then we'll wrap. There is a great new podcast produced here in town by Jake Brennan called Disgrace Land. Oh yeah, yeah. And there is an episode that came out not too long ago that focused on uh, a great that focused on a guitarist that played with Van during this period, right? But then was apparently murdered. Yeah. And you you spend a little bit of time on that in the book. Uh, if if anyone out there listening wants to really dig into that story, they should listen to Jake Brennan's Disgraceland for more on that. Um, so I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to add, just ask you one last thing. Sure. I'm a nerd for uh, nonfiction writing and journalism. So, of course, when I got to the interviews page at the back of your book, I counted. Yes. You interviewed more than 130 yeah. people right, right. for this book. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if over time you've come and landed on some sort of approach to interviewing that you want to share with the world. <laughs> oh, Sure. Uh, in terms of how you, you use that skill to put it all together. I'll say a couple of things about that. A, my, the learning curve was steep. I, I really did get better at it. <laughs> um, but at times, me not knowing or not talking like a journalist, I think worked to my advantage. I hope I never came off with like an agenda. I was just letting people talk. Um, now, if you, you know read a quote in the book where I ask someone something and it sounds cool, if I played you the tape, that wouldn't be so. Like right. I'm, I'm like, ah, oh, now could you tell me about? But <laughs> but what I would say is what I got better at was knowing what I was looking for and when it had been said in the interview. Like at the beginning, I'm transcribing hours and just thinking, well, this will all be useful. Yeah. <laughs> I might use all of it. And by the end, I would finish an hour phone call interview and be like. I, those three things they said right there, what I want. Let me transcribe those. It's probably all I'm going to use. Right. So just knowing um, what I was looking for and, you know, transcription is a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's an endless time suck. And at times I paid others to do it just because um, I, I couldn't I couldn't spend the time to do it. And also it's... It's the most tedious thing in the world. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> Especially know when you're it. listening to your own dumb voice interject every... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is always a weird feeling. Why didn't I ask that or why didn't I shut up at that time? Yes. Oh, it's, you're, you're, you, yeah, you're double... Um, your second guessing really kicks into high gear. Exactly. I'm sure yeah. I'll, I'll think through some of that as I listen back to this interview, perhaps even. <laughs> no, you're, I think you you <laughs> seem to be uh, excellent at this. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I you know, this was a story that's 50 years old. As you were walking around in 2015, 2016, 2017, writing this thing, yep. did you sense any reverberations, any similarities between what was happening then and what's happening now? Yeah, I mean, A, I think I'm built to do that. Just my brain is like a connection hunter. Yeah. But B, I would send articles all the time to my editor and be like, oh my God, like yeah. this is this is very eerily similar to mm -hmm. what we're talking about. And I don't know if, who knows, if I wrote it in 2008, would I have seen all that? I don't know. But it seems, we seem to be in another moment where the country is precarious, mm -hmm. like teetering. Um, are we going to pull together? Or are we yeah. Gonna, are we going to wrap right. this up? <laughs> Maybe there's an Astral Weeks being composed right now. That would be nice. Well, that's the thing. I wonder, a few people I would talk to um, had written their own memoir. Mm -hmm. And um, they were always interesting to read. But because they were there and experienced, because I have this, like, wonder about it, I feel like I—and I have this 50-year perspective 
something about that seemed to serve the story well. Mm. And so it did occur to me, like, if anything, I was involved with music or writing 50 years, someone wants to write about um, some 30-year-old will do it better than, <laughs> than me or my friends. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's value to... Um, at first, I thought it was a um, a real hazard that I wasn't alive. I thought everyone was going to roast me, like, mm. you weren't there and you got it wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's my real relief that people who were there, you know, concur that uh, I it does it does conjure what it felt like. Well, that's huge validation. I definitely I wasn't there either. Uh, I really enjoy it, and everybody else should get the book and read it. Uh, you'll enjoy it as well. Ryan Walsh, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. It would be wrong for me to sing the blues. All of my bad days proportionally kind. You're hearing a little bit of Get Me in a Room from Ryan Walsh's band Hallelujah the Hills. Learn more about the book Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968 at astralweeks.net. Show notes and links for this episode can be found at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. You can subscribe and listen to The Media Narrative at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio Public, and many other podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rob Hoschel. Music